Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. Before we get into the sermon, uh, three introductory notes. First, uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Hopefully, you're enjoying yourself, having a good time. Um, I've been especially grateful for many blessings in my life and um, have just been praying that God would, would bless our nation. We, we could use some blessings from on high. Two, uh, I, I mentioned this in the Monday morning updates a lot, but um, just if you're not watching those, please reach out to us. If you go to svccchurch.com, there's a button that says, I am in need of help. So if you want someone to talk to, want someone to pray with, or maybe there's something else we could help you with. We don't have all the resources in the world, but if we can help you in some way, we want to do it. So go to there. If you know somebody that's in need of something, someone to pray with, someone to talk to, or something else, send them that way. So it's svccchurch.com, and right on the main page is a button, I'm in need of help. Third, we will be taking communion at the end of the sermon today. So um, we mentioned it at the beginning of this service, but if you haven't done that yet, please go and get the needed elements for that. Okay, so today is the last week of our series in the book of Job, The Voice in the Whirlwind, Doubt, Suffering, and the Wisdom of Job. Now, as we've done every week, I just want to briefly review the previous weeks to, to get us to where we're at today, because this is the ending. This is the climax of the story. It all comes together. So we want to make sure that all the other elements are right at the front of our mind. In week one, we're introduced to Job. He was a righteous man. It says he's righteous and blameless. And he has a great life. He's got wealth. He's got tons of livestock. He has a big family. He's having the time of his life, living a great life. And then we are brought into the scene of the heavenly throne room. And we see God surrounded by these spiritual beings who are called the sons of God. And one of them approaches God in his throne room and puts this before the Lord. He says, you think Job's such a good guy. Job is only obedient. He's only righteous because you bless him. If you were to remove all those blessings, then Job would curse you. And so... This one being the accuser, Hashatan, we've talked about that in the previous weeks. The accuser makes the accusation that you remove the blessings and Job will curse God. And as the book unfolds, we see that indeed Job does lose everything. His wealth, his riches, his family, his kids are killed. His wife says to Job, curse God and die. And Job is in, in this horrible, miserable state of agony. He has some skin disease. He's in constant pain. So you're supposed to picture someone who is completely in physical and emotional agony. And subsequent to that, we're introduced to his friends. Job has these three friends come along and they give Job advice through the, through the, through the means of Hebrew poetry. Now, the wisdom that they give Job is based upon something called retribution theology. And we've talked about that in the previous week, so we won't review it much, but suffice to say, retribution theology was the default understanding of the ancient world. And as we've mentioned, it's sort of the default emotional response of human beings even today. And retribution theology says this. It says that if you are good, good things will happen to you. If you are bad, bad things will happen to you. 
So if that's the lens by which Job's friends see and understand the world, and if Job is suffering, then Job's friends are going to tell him, Job, you've sinned, you've done wrong. The reason why you're in agony is because there's something evil you're not confessing. We know that Job is innocent. He's a righteous man. And Job, in the midst of that, maintains his righteousness. He says, I'm innocent. I I haven't done anything. But Job's friends continue to push back. Additionally, another friend named Elihu is introduced, and he's still sort of working off that framework, but also offers this other idea to Job that maybe maybe you're suffering because um, God is using suffering for some other purpose. It could be some type of character building or something else, but he's still kind of working off that ancient understanding of the world. Now, upon hearing and listening to this advice, Job is is crying out. And in the book of Job, it's primarily pointed towards God. He's saying that God is so transcendent, he's so above and beyond, but he wants to be able to plead his case before God. And then he starts talking about how he wishes there was someone that could be the go-between, a mediator. Who can be the person that can go before God on Job's behalf and say he's innocent? His desire is that someone could bridge that gap. And Job laments and he cries out to God, but he recognizes that God is still transcendent. He's he's above and beyond, and he can't get to him. This goes on throughout the book of Job until finally Job's at a point where he's just, he tells God, like, answer me. Show up. I, I, I am suffering. I am in agony. It can't get any worse. Please answer me. And this brings us to the climax of the book, where the voice of God comes to Job in a whirlwind. And God says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now this is not what you were expecting, right? I mean, you're picturing God to come in and, and bring comfort to Job and, and care for him and comfort him. God shows up and says, brace yourself like a man. You've been questioning me. It's time for you to answer me. I mean, that's, that's heavy stuff. It's, it's one thing to be in a place where you are doubting God and wrestling with God and having questions for God. It's a whole nother thing when God shows up to question you. And this is what God says. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. You know it, Job. Were you there? Come on, tell me. Talk, Job. This is God's response. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And it's like question after question And it's sort of as if God is taking Job on a virtual tour of the universe 
Were you there when these foundations were laid? Were you there when the tides were set in motion? Were you there when the stars were stretched across the side? Were you, Job? Did you create them? You tell me. It's this virtual tour of the universe and God is demonstrating the vastness of his creation, the complexity of the creation. And you were expecting, it's like, a, like God to enter and, and bring immediate comfort to Job, but rather God shows up and is showing Job through question and interrogation just how powerful he is, just how knowledgeable he is, just how wise he is. Now, this is important, and I can't be certain of this, but I, I think, I think this is why the book of Job is not primarily written for people who are suffering. It's written for people before they suffer. In other words, in life, you are going to go, go through some heavy stuff. And before you get into that heavy stuff, before those trials hit, you need to know how great God is. You need to know how powerful he is. You need to know that he created everything, that he alone is wise. And so it prepares you rather than comforts you. Now, I'm sure tons of people in pain and suffering have been comforted by this book, but there's a sense in which it's no, no, you have to prepare yourself. Things are going to happen, but this is the God whom you worship. after this virtual tour of the universe, God changes the direction and asks different sorts of questions. He begins by asking questions like this. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? Now, think for a moment. God is is starting to introduce animals and say like, do you know about the mountain goat? Do you know about this animal? Do you know when this animal gives birth? And it's like, why would God show up to Job in his suffering and agony and ask him if he knows about the mountain goat? What in the world is going on here? Now remember, for many people, especially in biblical times, Job is considered the zenith of biblical wisdom. And the zenith of biblical wisdom is like, do you know about the mountain goat? Look at it, it goes on. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings towards the south? It's like, why would God, and it goes on, animal after animal, why would God show up, and first he takes Job through a virtual tour of the universe to, to, to like rhetorically ask Job, did, did you lay the foundation? And then he, he goes through like a virtual zoo, if you will, and starts naming animals. Do you know about the mountain goat? Do you know about the ostrich? Do you know about the hippo? Do you know about this? Do you know the, how the hawk takes its flight? It's like, what, what is underneath that? What is God trying to get at? And it's as if God is demonstrating to Job that he's created all of these different animals and he cares for them and he watches over them. He designed them to do certain things. And if God is great enough and powerful enough and cares enough 
to create and provide for the hawk to have the ability to fly, then don't you think God cares all the more for his image bearers? If God cares about the mountain goat, how much more so for Job? And so God shows up in the whirlwind and basically says, do you know who I am? Were you there when the foundations were laid? Do you make the sun rise? Do you control the tides? Do you know about this animal? Do you know about this animal? And it's as if God is saying the universe is far more complex, Job, than you could ever understand. And I am far more powerful than you can understand. And that is why the book of Job is so, so powerful because it's sort of like not the answer we wanted. For, when God shows up in the world, when we wanted him to do something different, but he points us to his majesty and his provision. Now listen to Job's response. <clears throat> then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's like Job is this righteous, blameless dude who is, who is suffering, but he's now come to the conclusion that his understanding of God was flawed. It was terribly flawed. It's not as if Job was, was a bad guy. That's not why he's repenting. The Bible tells us Job's a righteous man. But Job has come to the conclusion that his understanding of God was flawed, terribly flawed. And now he's saying, Lord, I repent of my understanding of you. How can I, as a finite human being, ever dare to understand your ways? I can't. And so I repent. Now there's something kind of cool going on in the Hebrew. It says, and, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so Job is saying, I, I'm, I'm repenting of my faulty understanding of the nature of God, but he's also, the text is signaling it's an end of his lament. When he is repenting or relenting or leaving behind or turning around from the dust and ashes, the dust and ashes are a technical term for a lamenting period. So Job has had God show up. God has finally answered him. And Job was the righteous man. He just wanted to hear it from God's mouth himself. And when he did that, now he can leave his lament. He can go on because God has finally answered him. And God's response was basically, I created everything, you didn't. Look at all the animals, I care for them. So in one sense, um, this is why so many people love the book of Job and why so many people hate the book of Job. Because the book of Job lured us in. It was talking about like human suffering and we were going to get an answer to some of those things. Why, why do good people suffer? Why do bad people prosper? Why, why is Job allowed to go through this? And you think you're going to get those types of answers. And it lures you in and right when you think you're going to get those answers, God shows up. And his answer to Job is pretty much like, bro, don't you know I made the hippo? I made the hippo and the mountain goat. What have you done? And it's sort of like, what? But that's, that's the, the, the brilliance of the book. 
the universe is crazy complex. Job has no idea about how it's working. I mean, think about this. Job is not even aware that there was a whole spiritual realm. There was a scene in the spiritual realm where the accuser, the Satan, challenges God in his throne room about the very character of Job. Job isn't aware of the, he can't understand those realities. He can't understand the complexities and inner workings of the universe, how the sun rises, how the sun sets, how the tides are. He can't provide for all of creation. And in another sense, like modern science only serves to amplify this message. Because in the ancient world, I mean, God can show up and say like, do you know how to make the sunrise? Do you know how to control the tides? And the ancient person would have been no, but the ancient person did not know how complex that was. So God is demonstrating how complex the universe is in the ancient world. But in the modern world, we now know even further how complex it is. So like, they, they didn't know about the laws of gravity, the laws of nature, they didn't, they didn't know about the vastness of the universe. They didn't know that human bodies are composed of trillions of cells. So modern science has only advanced the complexity of the inner workings of the universe. So if God were writing it today, he, maybe he wouldn't say, do you know how this rises or this sets? He might say something like, did you write the laws of gravity? Did you write the laws of nature? Did you put the planet Earth on a perfect 23 degree axle tilt? Did you program the 37 trillion cells that do exactly what they are supposed to do that occupy your body? Did you program those 37 trillion cells? See, it's like, we don't even know how complex our body is composed of 37 trillion cells that are programmed to just do what they're supposed to do. And even underneath those cells, there's even smaller mechanisms that are incredibly complex. And if you look underneath that, there's even more mechanisms that are incredibly complex. And so God shows up in power and glory and Job realizes, even if God could try and explain to me the complexities of the operations of the universe, I would not understand. So his only response, Job's only response, is to bow in humility, repent, and say, I don't understand, but I trust you. I trust you. He trusts God. Now, if you're a parent or, or you've ever had kids in your life who you, you've had to, to care for for a time, um, you know this principle to be true. So if my three-year-old is having an issue with something, there are things I can't explain to him. There are things that are so complex for my three-year-old that he's not going to understand. And he may be throwing a fit, having a problem, 
and he doesn't understand this, this, or this, but it would be irrational for me to then try to rationally explain X, Y, Z to the three-year-old. He doesn't have the cognitive capacity or ability to understand what a fully formed adult has. Now, here's the thing. Here is the wisdom of Job. The three-year-old does not have the ability to have the understanding of a fully formed adult. But the distance between a three-year-old and fully formed adult is like this. The distance between us as fully formed adults and God is immeasurable. It's a gap of infinite distance. We finite human beings are nowhere near the mind of God. And so there are things in life, especially suffering, that is so difficult and the universe is so complex that sometimes all you can do is trust God. And so, Lord, we are in some difficult days. We don't know what to do about a lot of things. But in humility, like Job, we bow before you. We want to trust you. Please lead us. Please take our hands. We trust you. Lead us like the good shepherd you are. That is the wisdom that God provides. Now the story goes on. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliaphaz, the Tamanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So remember the friends of Job's, they, they, they were working off retribution theology. Good things um, will always follow good people. And if something bad's happening to someone, it means that they must have done something bad. And God shows up, no, they have angered me. Retribution theology is not true. And then God says, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, you can go through this verse really quick and move on, but you just stop. This is crazy. This is crazy. God says, you guys, you need to go make some sacrifices. And then he says, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. You following that? You following that? Job is an innocent, righteous man who suffers and is subsequently vindicated by God and then becomes the mediator on behalf of sinful men. Remember, Job was wanting there to be a mediator between him and God. Who can go plead my case before God? And then how does the book end? An innocent man who suffers, who is vindicated, and then becomes the mediator, the go-between, and seeks forgiveness on behalf of sinful men. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that remind you of somebody? 
an innocent man who suffers, who's vindicated by God, who then in turn becomes a mediator and seeks forgiveness on behalf of sinful people. See, Job, Job, Job's a, a figure pointing to a greater figure. And the book ends, Job forty-two seventeen, and so he died old and full of years. And in the book, God restores a lot of the things that Job loses, but that's, that's not the, the main point of the book. It's not about a restoration of what he lost. It's about the wisdom provided in the whirlwind. And you need to know this, that there are all kinds of philosophical responses to the problem of evil, to the problem of suffering. And there's brilliant Christian thinkers who have given great answers to those things. Um, and part of why we do apologetics every year is to talk about things like that. And I enjoy talking about the philosophical and theological defense for the problem of evil, for suffering in the world. And so it's not as if the Bible doesn't care about that. But here is the wisdom of Job. When you are in the thick of it, when life hits you hard, which it will, when things are chaotic, where you don't know where to go, where there's confusion all around, even if God were to show up and explain all the intricate workings of the operation of the universe, you wouldn't get it. See, there's a temptation in human pride to look up to God and say, you explain it to me as if you'd understand, as if you could understand the infinite mind of the living God. And so what God does is he reminds you, I am all powerful. I am provide, I am good. Now trust me. And the wisdom of Job says, when life hits you hard, when it hits you like a train, when you cry in yourself to sleep every night, when nothing makes sense, the only thing you can do in those moments is trust in the power and wisdom of Almighty God. And so, Lord, again we ask, in these times, we want to trust you. We want to follow you. Take our hands and lead us. We're going to transition into communion with those themes on our mind. Because Job was the righteous man who suffered, who was vindicated by God, who then in turn becomes a mediator who seeks forgiveness on behalf of sinful men. And that's what communion is ultimately about. God himself finally came. He came to Job in a whirlwind, but then he came to us definitively and climactically in the person and work of Jesus. And when the, the voice in the world when came to human beings, human beings turned against him. We crucified him. And in that, Jesus suffers. He is the one who suffers alongside of humanity. But just like Job, he was righteous and God vindicates him and there's resurrection. And now Jesus is our great high priest who seeks forgiveness on behalf of sinful men. And so we come to communion remembering Jesus. And Lord, we want to trust you. We know there's, there's philosophical and theological responses to the problem of evil and suffering, but in the moment, we finite human beings, all we could do is put out our hand and say, take our hand, Lord, and lead us. And we know you love us and you are good because of the cross. 
on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and remember. Likewise, Jesus took the cup. It says, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you take this, continue to do it until my return. So Lord, we look for your return. We wait for your return. And when we drink this, we are pledging our allegiance and we are declaring by faith, we trust you today and we will trust you tomorrow and we will trust you until you come again. In times like this, where it's very difficult, the book of Job tells us to remember who God is. He is the one who laid the foundations of the earth. He put the tides in motion. He makes the sun rise. He turns night into dawn. And so we remember who you are, Lord, and we ask that you enable us to trust you. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of Job. Help us to trust you. When things don't make sense, remind us that our finite brains could, couldn't understand the infinite complexities and operations of the universe, Lord, but we entrust them to you because you are all powerful, you are all knowing, and you are all good. It's hard to believe those sometimes, but today in faith, we declare them to be true. And we thank you for your son and what he did on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.